This morning we are uh, deviating from our uh, study through the Gospel of John, and in light of the Christmas season, we are actually going to go way back to Genesis chapter 3. And as you think about Genesis 3, you go, well, that's how is that a Christmas message? You'll hear this one. Indeed it is. We're going to take a break from the study for John's Gospel uh, for the next probably five weeks. Uh, as we, uh, the last Sunday is the day after Christmas, and then we've got the New Year's Sunday the following week. So for the next five weeks or so, we will uh, be in various places um, in the Scripture. So always the challenge, of course, as we do that is uh, preaching the Word in its context preaching God's word as, as, it, as it is, and making the uh, application for this season is what I hope to do over the next few weeks. So, uh, as I said, Genesis chapter 3 this morning, uh, we will look at the first 19 verses. But first, let us pray. Father in heaven, uh, you are not only holy, but you are holier and not only are you holier than us, but you are the holiest, that you are far separated from your creatures in purity and in perfection. We are drawn to you this morning by the Spirit. We are robed in your Son's perfection that we might boldly come before your throne this morning. This morning I would like to pray uh, with the church for the ministry at Portland Fellowship this morning. I pray that you would continue your work there to reveal the true identity of men and women and what they can have in the person of Jesus Christ. We pray for Ben and Mary and their travels in Papua New Guinea that you would uh, repair the boat, uh, get them on their way. And in the meantime, while they wait, that they would not wait in frustration, but they would minister to those that they come in contact there before they head to the village where they want to uh, desire to serve uh, those people there, Lord. And I pray this morning that you would open our eyes, uh, that we might see the truth from the scriptures this morning. I pray also, Lord, that you would give us minds that we might think rightly about ourselves, rightly concerning your holiness, Lord. We ask for a transformed will that we would do and observe all the commands that you have for us from the scripture this morning. And all of this we ask in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So, if you are able to stand, would you please stand for the reading of God's infallible, inerrant, inspired word from Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that that tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. 
Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said to the woman, whom you gave, the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. This is God's Word. I know that was a lot of text to stand for. I'm glad you did. At Christmas time, we look back. We look back in time and we celebrate the birth uh, of the promised deliverer of God's people, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. We try to capture the spirit of the season. And I would say that most of the pre-part to Christmas, the, the spirit of the season is anticipation. It is anticipating what is to come. Remember when you were a kid and you had gifts sitting there underneath your tree at Christmas time and uh, you were just sort of filled with anticipation and excitement and waiting for that day when you could open them. Some of you maybe were a little less patient and you reached under there and shook them to try to find out what they were and to guess and all that sort of thing. But the idea is that you were anticipating this day when the, those gifts would be open and there was excitement that I don't know what might be in this pretty package. And so some of us kids, I was one of them that begrudgingly waited for that day and maybe asked my mom for a few weeks ahead of time, can I just open one? Can I open one now? That kind of thing. My kids never do that. Yes, they do. Um, but anyway, so this idea of anticipation, you can't wait, right? Um, anticipating what is to come. And that's kind of the, the idea if, of, of this season that we're in, this anticipation of Christmas. We look backwards at that. From the point of this passage, um, we're going to consider this morning and going forward through all of biblical history, all of God's chosen people have lived in anticipation. When we think about the Old Testament, they were living in anticipation of the deliverer of God's people, the, the one who would come and crush their enemy, who would reconcile them to eternal relationship with their father. All of Israel was waiting. When will the Messiah come? Who will it be? As we unfold this passage, we're going to discover our inherited human problem, the gracious promise of God to deliver us, 
and the futility of the temporal life as we eagerly, eagerly now still await our complete redemption, the consummation of what God has done for us and is doing for us in Christ Jesus as we await the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. We do wait in anticipation. I heard Katie say that this morning. Could it, it could be today. It could be soon, hopefully in a minute, right? That's the anticipation of this life. The hope that we live for is anticipating the return of Jesus, which is the, the spirit of what it is that we do at Christmas time is this anticipation uh, of the Lord. So... Before, I want to give us a little background before we get to chapter 3. Before anything created came to be, before there was any creation, as we, as we think about the book of Genesis, the book of Genesis is a book of beginnings. It is the first book of the Bible. It is the first book of the books of Moses. It is the beginnings, which is what Genesis means. But, but it starts before the beginning. The book starts before the beginning, before anything was created, before anything came to be. God pre-existed in perfect holiness and in perfect purity. And he had perfected relationship, didn't he? God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit. Before anything was created, he was, he was in perfect relationship and in purity and in righteousness and in holiness. Well, the created world came to exist as the pure and holy God spoke it into being. Anything that he spoke into being existed at the precise moment that the words flew out of his mouth and when it was sounded, the heavens and the earth and the land and the sea and the vegetation and then night and day and the birds of the air and animals of the earth and then finally mankind all came to exist at the sound of God's word. And then God's conclusion was, all that I created was good. Not just good, it was very good. But the pinnacle of that creation was Adam and Eve. You see, because Adam and Eve, they were made uh, by God as a reflection of his image in the world. And he gave them dominion over the land and to rule over God's creation. He, he, these were, as, as it were, like vice regents of God in the kingdom. They were given free will. He gave them the ability to sin and the ability to not sin. But he did give them a boundary. He gave them the ability. They had the ability to either sin or not sin at that time. They were the freest people. On the, they were free. They were free people. Free to sin, free not to sin. They had definitely had free will at that point. But he gave them one boundary to live on, under. And so, for the sake of round numbers, I'm going to argue this, and don't, this is not an actual number. I'm just going to say, for example, let us say that in the garden there were only a thousand trees. Say there were just a thousand trees in the garden. And God said, you are free to use 999 of these trees. 999 of these trees belong to you. I have given them to you to sustain you. I, and I've given everything else underneath you. You, you have all of these, 999 trees, and you have dominion over all the animals and over all the earth as my vice regents, as you reflect my image in the world. That's pretty awesome, I would think. But 
We're going to see that there soon becomes a problem. Adam and Eve are free. He says, God, God says, you are free. You're free to choose. But remember that you are a, are a but of reflection. You are not me. You are but a reflection of me. And this one tree is mine. This one is mine. I get one. You get 999 to use as you see fit. This one belongs to me and to me alone. You are a reflection. You are not me. I am God, and I created you. I was not created, but you were created, right? So he's like, remember this, that you are just, just a reflection, and I am the Lord your God. And now we come to the scene of chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. So now we introduce Satan. The ESV says that he was more crafty. The idea of the Hebrew word more fully describes it as this. He was deceitful and maliciously manipulative for selfish gain. Deceitful. Maliciously manipulative for himself. Crafty, right? Now, I hope nobody ever calls uh, you or me crafty because that, that's what that means, right? But that's the idea, right? That he was manipulative and it was for himself. The enemy of God and he was also the enemy of his earthly vice regents. Now he enters the scene. But before we move ahead, I want to remind you that Adam and Eve, they at this point have free will. They are armed with the ability to sin as well as the ability to not sin. So now we're going to look as we move forward to this two-part problem. Verse 2. Well, the end of verse 1. And then verse 2. He said to the woman, did God actually say to you, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So here we see this two-part problem. The second part of the problem is actually worse than the first, but let's look at problem one. Problem one, the serpent desires to manipulate Eve into eating of the tree that belongs to God alone. He twists the word of God to suppose that God either forbids that no fruit of any tree is to be eaten, as you listen, as you look carefully at his words, right? Did God actually say to you, shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So he's saying, he's saying more than what God said, right? None of these trees belong to you. Did God really say that the, none of these trees belong to you? That everything is off limits? Well, no. He didn't say that, but that's, that's the idea of what he's trying to manipulate to her. He twists this. Or that he didn't really mean what he said about the consequences. God said, yeah, if you did the tree, he surely did not mean that you would die. Why would God restrict, restrict you to merely being a reflection when you can transcend and become as He is? This is the enemy's manipulation towards Eve. He says, why would God restrict you to being a reflection when you can transcend? You can become as He is. He knows this. He knows that if you eat of this tree, you will become as He is. You will have transcended. You will no longer be a reflection. You will be a reflection of yourself. You will not be reflecting God. You reflect you. 
God doesn't want that, you see. This is what he's saying. And then Eve, of course, kind of adds to God's word in her own free will, and she twists the scripture just a little bit. And she says, I can't eat of the fruit of that one tree in the midst of the garden. I can't even touch it, or I will die. This is what she tells the serpent. And then we're going to see what comes after this is what I like to call the great exchange. There's a great exchange that takes place here. Verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So here is the great exchange. Adam and Eve change the, change the truth. They exchange it, the truth of God's word, for a lie. They, exercising their God-given free will to sin or to not sin, Adam and Eve choose sin. They choose to misrepresent the Creator who had given them dominion over the earth, and they failed to reflect His image. And from this point forward, Adam and Eve exchanged not only the truth for a lie, but they exchanged free will for bondage. They had free will where they could choose to not sin or choose to sin. And this great exchange then bound them. They were in bondage now. They've lost the ability to not sin. And when they recognize this, we should notice what their first move is to cover it up. To cover up their nakedness, to cover up their guilt, to cover up their shame. And then here's the major problem. All people born after Adam were born with this same problem. Our free will has been in bondage to sin. We have an inherited inability to not sin. And some might be thinking, well then, if humankind is born in bondage to sin and they cannot exercise free will to not sin, then why should I be held accountable for Adam's sin? If you would, turn with me to Romans chapter 1. And we're going to see a description in Romans chapter 1 of this great exchange. The great exchange, which is common to all. Beginning in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse." For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever." Amen. 
You see, there is the inherited human problem, exchanging the truth of God for a lie. But notice that the Scripture doesn't let anybody off the hook. It says that what may be known of God is plainly clear to them, as God has shown it to them in creation. It is plain. It is clear that God is God, that there is a Creator God. It is plain to them. And the fact that man is in bondage to sin, he can't blame on God. God has shown them clearly that he is who he is. So that is why we are accountable, because human beings suppress the truth. What does it look like to suppress the truth? You know the truth. The truth has been revealed to you. If I deny the truth, it doesn't exist, right? If I deny it and I suppress it and I push it down, then in my mind and in my life and in my living, the truth doesn't exist. I put it behind me. I've stomped on it. I bet you guys have had relationships with, pe with people that you have spoken the truth of God's Word, the truth of the Scriptures into their life, and they act as though you didn't say anything at all because they have suppressed the truth. They have pushed it down, pushed it aside. Well, let's look at verses 8 through 10. Verses 8 through 10. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. See, Adam and Eve, first they try to cover their sin, and then they tried to hide. They try to hide themselves from God. You and I, we cannot hide our sin from God. We cannot hide ourselves from Him. You know, He's present at everything that you look upon. He's present when you think you're alone. He's present when you watch TV. He's present when you surf the internet. He's present when you're on social media and you're texting something nasty. God is present in all of those things. We cannot hide from Him. We can't cover it up. Psalm 139 says this, Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, or if I go to hell, you are there. Wherever it is that I go, you are sure to be there. Where will I hide myself from God? And you see, this leads us to a problem, doesn't it? All of us who were born of Adam, not one of us could stand in the presence of God unashamed. From this point forward, humanity, there's no one who could stand before God and not be ashamed. Not be ashamed of their sin. They could not be ashamed. They could not stand with him in front of him unashamed. Now, instead of hiding, instead of covering it up, their next thing to do is to blame. Their shame and blame. As we look at 11 through 13, he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman you gave to be with me she gave me of the fruit, and I ate. 
Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. You see, there's this blame, shame and blame. When Adam, when confronted with their sin, Adam and Eve move from shame to blame. Adam blames God and the woman. Notice he doesn't just blame the woman. The woman that you gave me. See, he's caught in sin and it's God's fault. It's God's fault, according to him. The woman that you gave me, that caused me to eat. And then he says, yes, I ate of the tree, but you're the one who sent this woman to help me. And she didn't help me. She caused me to sin. It's your fault. You sent this woman to me. She gave me the fruit and I did eat. And Eve responds with, well, the devil made me do it. It was the serpent's fault. The devil made me do it. I was tricked and deceived. You see, it's not my fault. This again is a blaming God too. You see, you made me this way. You made me so that I was able to be deceived and tricked. You made me this way. It's your fault, God, that I'm caught in this sin, she would say. In my time as pastor, I've heard several people say stuff like this. This thing that I'm doing, this thing that I'm in, this is just the way that God made me. I know God's standard, but my choices are the result of Him making me this way. If He had wanted me to be different, He would have made me different. I'm just going to be like this forever. This is a sin that I will never overcome because God just made me this way. I've heard it tons of times from people. He, and I've heard, him, I've heard this said, well, I know God's standard. I know that I'm living not according to His standard. I know that my life is sinful. But because I am so weak, God's just going to have to understand. God's just going to have to understand. Romans 9, 19 and 20 says this, Why does He still find fault? Who can resist His will? Well, who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me this way? Here's the problem. Mankind is ruined by sin. Those created in the image of God have distorted the image of God. They are unable to reflect the holiness of God in purity. They become unworthy to act as vice regents on the earth, this Adam and Eve. They become unworthy to act as his vice regents, those representing the king of heaven. They become unworthy. They're unable to stand in the presence of God without a covering for their shame. Their shame must be covered up. They can't stand before God. Can you imagine how Adam and Eve might have prayed in this moment? I was thinking about this this week. How would Adam and Eve maybe with this... The crushing guilt, the shame, the, the covering up, the inability to stand, the, the, the inability to be in his presence without shame, without guilt. That sinking feeling must have come over them. And I would imagine they prayed something like this. How can this be restored? 
What payment can be made that will satisfy God? And who will defeat this deceiver? I hope that that would have been my prayer if I was in that situation. And I think it is, it really was my prayer in my whole life. As you think about when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, when you come to faith in the Lord, it's like, how can I be delivered from this body of sin? I know the wretch that I am. How can I be delivered? I'm easily led astray and deceived. Who will crush the deceiver for me? I can't do it. How will I be made to be able to stand in the presence of God Almighty, my Creator, the Holy One, without shame, without guilt? How will I be able to stand? And then God makes a promise. He addresses the problem, but He makes a problem. The Lord God said to the servant, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. You see, this is the first Christmas promise. This is the Christmas promise. This is the first mention of the gospel, what is known as the proto-evangelium. Proto, you know, beginning, the type, the, the first, right? This is, this is the first Christmas promise. It is the promise that Abraham looked for. It's the promise that Moses spoke of. It's the one that the prophets anticipated. From the seed of Eve would come one who would fight the enemy of God's people. One whose suffering God would count as satisfactory for the sins of humankind. One who would be able to stand in the presence of God without shame. One who would bear the image of God without distortion. And then God here, he puts the enemy on notice. Notice who he addresses this promise to. He addresses the promise to the serpent. One is coming from Eve who will crush your head. One is coming who will crush you, Satan. You are the lowest of low and you will crawl on your belly and one is coming. You may think you're winning. You may think you're gaining when you strike his heel. You may think you have won. You may think you have conquered because you have troubled all of God's people. You may think you have troubled, but he will crush your head. He will be victorious. I'm putting you on notice. A man born of a woman is coming to defeat you and he's going to defeat you once and for all. Until he comes, you are cursed above all things. Now the Creator, see, he moves his attention upon the man and upon the woman. Verse 16, to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, and in pain you shall bring forth your children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. While you await the arrival of the seed that is to come from you, to redeem you, to redeem your sin, it has its consequence, doesn't it? I'm sending you a promised deliverer. He's going to come and crush Satan. But because of your sin, there are some consequences. This life will be full of pain and struggle and toil for you. And as you bring up children into the world, hoping that this next one born is the seed, it's the promised one. Could you imagine that at every birth from Eve on, this anticipation, this is the one 
And the first one is a murderer. Okay, it's not him. Right? Do you imagine that anticipation? Well, maybe the next one. Maybe the next one. Maybe the next seed is the one, right? The promise, this anticipation. And each seed that was born to her comes to her, and it comes in pain. This is what God says to Eve. And he says, you and Adam's desires are going to be contrary to each other. Marital strife will be what's normal. This will be what's normal for you. You will desire to rule yourself, Eve, but your husband will be the authority that you're required to submit to. You'll desire to rule your own life, but your husband will be the head. And then he addresses Adam. And to Adam he says, Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Curses the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. You shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken for your dust, and to dust you will return. As for you, Adam, the work of yielding produce will come at a cost. It will come at a cost to you. It will cost you your blood, your sweat, and your tears. You will be consumed with work. And there will always be more work to do than you can handle. You will desire work over relationships. You desire work over relationship with your wife. And your wife will desire your position. She'll desire your position. She'll desire to usurp your position as authority. Adam and Eve, God would say, in this life, all will be toil and trouble for you. You see, the whole of creation, not only are you marred, are you totally tainted by your own sin, but the whole of creation is affected because of your sin. It is marred because of sin. But then he says, but remember, there is hope. There is a promise. It will be a struggle. It will be trouble, but there's a promise. There's one coming. There's one who's going to come from you who will deliver you. He's coming for you. In him, you will be made able to stand. It is in him that you will stand before God unashamed. At Christmas time, we rejoice in that promise of God. We celebrate the reality that Jesus Christ was born one of us. He was uh, born one of us, but yet he lived like none of us. Born as one of us, lived like none of us. He was victorious over sin and death at the cross, and he defeated the serpent. When we look at the cross, I've, I've known people who, who don't necessarily like the song we sang this morning, the, the wonder of wonderful cross. Because what's wonderful about our Savior dying? Everything is wonderful about that. I have argued this. That the cross is not a sign of defeat. It's a sign of victory. It is Satan being crushed at the cross. It is the love of God poured out for sinners like you and me. It is the promise of Christmas, isn't it? That God sent the, the, the serpent-crushing Savior, born as one of us, lived like none of us, and His death has enabled us to stand. It is in the death of Christ I stand. We've sung that song as well, right? In the death of Christ I stand. In His death I stand. The punishment I deserve was poured out upon Him. And in his death, I stand before God, unashamed, unashamed, still affected by the leftover sin in me, right? 
still affected by that. But I stand before God unashamed because I stand in Jesus Christ. I stand in Him. In Him alone. The serpent-crushing Savior. The right King. The one who reflected God's image perfectly in my stead. I stand in Him. In Christ, we need not cover our sin because Jesus, by His death and resurrection, didn't just cover our sin, it took it away. It took it away. He has freed the believer of the bondage of sin. We have been born again and now enabled by grace to choose once again to not sin. It is the restoration of, of God's people to send His Son. That though we were once in bondage to sin and we had no choice, all we could do was sin. But God in Christ Jesus set us free. And now we are free to choose to sin or choose to not sin. And one day, and I can't wait for this day, when I'll be unable to sin, when I won't ever be in the presence of sin, that the power of sin will have no effect on the world that I live in. I can't wait for that day. We've been born again and enabled by grace to choose not to sin. At Christmas time, we should not only look backward at the birth of Jesus' death, the fulfillment of God's promise to crush the enemy and restore us, but we should remind ourselves that Jesus has promised that in the same way He left, He will come again. And He will come again and take us to Himself. We will look forward to His second coming when our redemption is consummated, when we are no longer subject to the effects of, and the presence of sin. But the effects of sin, are they still evident in our lives? We see it, don't we, in the world. We see the, the infection of sin in our fallen world. Listen to what Romans 8, 20-24 says. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have been the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we eagerly await our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For it is in this hope that we were saved. While we wait for Christ to come, we're reminded of what Titus says. How do you live now? How do you live? How do you live now in this broken, fallen world? Knowing that Christ has come, the Savior has come that Christmas morning, He came. That, that He came and He died in your stead, that you have been made able to stand. But we know now that this world is still corrupted and still broken. And what do we do in this time? How do we live while we await Christ's return again? We're reminded in Titus that we're to pursue holy living while we wait for the promise that is yet to come. Anticipating the promise. Titus 2 tells us, For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself his own possession, who are zealous for good works. See, we're reminded in this passage that the promise of the serpent crushing seed from Adam was, from, from Eve was delivered to all who believe because of God's mercy and because of his grace. Anyone who has ever been saved 
And only those whom God has given grace to believe have seen the salvation of God. But in this present time of toil, while we wait for the glorious return of our God and Savior, we are being purified in holiness. And this scripture tells us this is how we're supposed to live, to be zealous, to do God's kingdom work on earth as his vice regents, as his vice regents, as it was originally made to be as the image bearers of God, vice regents on earth, doing kingdom work. And because of this hope that we have at Christmas time, because of this anticipation as we are awaiting the return of our Savior, we can really sing the song that we will sing surely this season, Joy to the world, the Lord has come. And us renouncing ungodliness in this present evil age, can sing the one verse of that song that says, No more let sin and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make His blessings flow as far as the curse is found. As far as the curse is found, He's coming. The Lord is coming to redeem it, right? And we anticipate that coming. So I hope that we don't lose the spirit of Christmas this season and not live in anticipation. Live in anticipation of the coming Savior. And here's how you know you can trust it. You can trust the promise of God that Jesus will return because Jesus came. And that's what we're going to celebrate on the 24th or 25th or both. We are celebrating that God is true to His promises. God became one of us in the person of Jesus and lived like none of us. And he paid a debt that we could not pay. And he promised us when he left that he would return again and take us home with him. That he would remove us from this world of sin and debauchery and that, that, this, that the toil and the struggle would be relieved and that we would be in the presence of the Lord forever and ever. Amen? Are we looking forward and anticipating Christ's return? I hope, again, as I said, that at this Christmas time, when we anticipate Christmas Day, hope we just reflect on that. That's the promise of God come true. And I anticipate His return once again to take us home. Let us... Take a moment of silence, reflect on God's Word. And Father God, I do thank You for the promise of Jesus Christ. I thank You for the truth of the Gospel. That in the Gospel, You have transformed us into those who stand. We can stand before holy God, robed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Robed in the One who perfectly reflected your image, who paid our debt for us. Lord, we long for the day when our faith will be sight. We long for the day when not only the penalty and the power of sin has been eradicated, but that the presence of sin will be no more. We look forward to that day where we will rejoice always without the presence of sin. Lord, we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.